Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Now Romans chapter 7 is in many ways the portraits of the struggles of what it means to be a Christian. If you've ever struggled with doubt, if you've ever struggled with sin, if you've ever struggled with a persistent problem that seems to affect you over and over and over again, then this chapter is for you. Paul has spoken of our position in Christ. That is, we are united to Jesus. He is our husband. The sin nature he's talked about and the law of Moses he's talked about. Paul has used an analogy or an illustration in verses 1 through 3. And then an application in verses 4 through 6. Now Paul will speak of some of the benefits of God's law. Paul knew that there would be critics. That there would be skeptics. That there would be those people who object to Paul's teaching and suggest that Paul is bringing an insidious accusation. That somehow there's something wrong with the law itself. That somehow it is sinful or somehow it is evil. And once again Paul will answer that objection with a holy shout. May it never be it says in the beginning of verse 7. So Paul affirms that the law is holy. And not only is the law holy, but it serves specific functions. Part of what the law does is it defines sin in verse 7. The law clearly establishes the line of demarcation between what is right and what is wrong. And that by defining what is right from wrong, it will declare A righteous standard. The righteous standard is the standard of God. Not only does it reveal the righteous standard of God, but it also reveals who falls short. I won't speak for you, but I'll speak for me. That I fall short. But I can with confidence declare what the scripture declares. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. 
The law also provokes sin in verses 8 through 12. And that is that the law does not only not cause someone to disobey God, but rather arouses the inborn desire to sin. So the law exposes the cause of sin in verse 13. So God's law doesn't force anyone to do anything. Let me repeat that. The law doesn't force anyone to do anything. It simply sets forth the standard of righteousness and the blessings that flow for those who obey it and the curses that come from those who disobey it. You see, Paul is going to do something that you don't want to have done. Point to who's responsible for what you do. Yeah, if you forget everything else that I say this morning, remember this. Who is responsible for what you do? That's exactly right. You are. Whether you want to shout it out loud, whether you want to whisper it quietly to yourself, you need to be able to say, I'm responsible for what I think and what I say And what I do, the responsibility for sin falls on the individual who who has willingly submitted to the sin nature rather than the holy dictates of the law. So in so doing, the law fulfills one of its primary functions to reveal human beings as hopeless lawbreakers in desperate need of a savior. And that super abundant grace comes from the savior. That's part of the point. Paul has already made it a compelling case that all human beings are hopeless sinners before God. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, in verse 22, in verse 23, in Psalm 14, Isaiah 53, 6, the list could go on and on. Paul has already pointed out our connection to Adam and our condition Because of his rebellion and sin. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12. The whole world rests under condemnation and wrath and a curse. According to Romans chapter 3 verse 19. All human beings are hopelessly and helplessly held in captivity to sin and Satan. And by hopelessly I mean apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. But thank God there's a Christ and thank God. God, there's a gospel because there's Jesus and because there's a gospel, there's hope. That's part of the point. I'm indebted to Dr. W. Griffin Thomas for my outline. I unashamedly stole this outline. I didn't steal Dr. Griffith's sermon, but I did steal his outline. And there it is. The law reveals the fact of sin in verse 7. The law reveals the occasion of sin. The law reveals the power of sin. The law reveals the effect of sin. The law reveals the deception of sin. The law reveals the sinfulness of sin. Let's look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness. 
unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now twice before, Paul has used that expression, what shall we say then? He used that in chapter 6, verse 1. There, the issue was grace. He used it in chapter 6, verse 15. There, the issue was freedom. He uses it again right here in chapter 7, verse 1. The issue here is, is the law sin? Now, Paul has already intimated that the inclination towards sin is somehow connected to and linked to the revelation of the law and our relationship to the law. And so here's what Paul is going to do. He's going to point out that the law has many benefits. But there is one thing. There's one thing that the law has never done and can never do. The law has never saved anyone. The law has never made anyone holy. Because it can't. The law removes our ignorance of sin in verse 7. The law resurrects our sinful desires in verses 8 through 11. The law reflects the character of God in verse 12. The law reminds us just how terrible sin really is. And so Paul writes, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law reveals sin. And human beings attempt to conceal sin. And this is a great big division that you should automatically be thinking about right at this very moment. The law reveals sin. The sinful human being and the sinful human heart longs to conceal sin. And the way I know that is because what you already know in your own heart. I hope nobody finds out. I hope nobody knows the truth about what's going on in my thought life or what's going on in my speech. The law reveals sin. Human beings want to cover it up. They want to camouflage it. They want to somehow make it less egregious than it really is. And so what we do is we use other words to describe sin. We call it a failing. We call it human weakness. We call it a mistake. We call it part of our identity. And see, part of the challenge that the Bible makes is to call sin what it really is, sin. Do you think it's helpful to call poison medicine? See, you laugh at how ridiculous that is. When a person, when you see a jar and it has a skull and crossbones on it and great big letters, it says poison. Do you think it's a good idea to give it to your children and call it medicine? The answer is no. And so Paul uses the illustration of covetousness. Pause for a moment. Paul is a lawyer. He knows the law. He knows the commandments. And like the rich young ruler, if asked, if you were to ask 
Paul, did you keep the law as a young man growing up? He would have, like the rich young ruler, said, since my youth. My father was a Pharisee and his father before him. From my youth we followed the law of Moses. And nine commandments were linked to behavior. And one linked to desire. There were certain things that said you should do this and don't do that. Do this and don't do that. But there was one commandment that was linked to desire. It was the commandment thou shalt not covet. And so... Paul will use the illustration of lust or covetousness. And by the way, covetousness is a word that hardly exists in our language and is rarely spoken in popular speech. You'll never hear Jay Leno use the word covet. You'll never hear the popular television stars use the word covet. The Greek noun is epithumia. It appears some 38 times in the noun form. It appears some 16 times in the verb form. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said, I need to warn you, beware of covetousness. The word means to desire. And you might think, It's wrong to desire? No, it's not wrong to desire. It's not wrong to want food. It's not wrong to want clothing or or shelter. It's it's not wrong to, to want companionship and relationship. It isn't wrong for you to want love. It isn't wrong for you to want meaning in your life. Here the word means to want something more than that you already have enough of. It's not wrong to want to have shoes. But 300 pair, really? It's not wrong for you to want to have certain things in certain, in certain quantity. So here, the idea is to long for something you already have enough of or a sufficient quantity of. It's to desire something that doesn't rightfully belong to you. Or to possess something that is already in the possession of someone else. And that you think that you deserve it. Covet is to look at something that belongs to someone else. And say, I want that for myself. One William Gouge wrote, quote, He was a Puritan, and so they talk like that back in these days. He wrote, Observe the inward wishes of thine heart. If they be especially of the things of this world, they argue a covetous disposition. Covetousness is styled the lust of the eye in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. That is an inward, inordinate desire arising from the sight of such and such a thing. Many things may be seen which are not desired, but if desired, and that inordinately, that is covetousness. It's not wrong to look at something. It's not wrong to see something and look at something. You cross a line when you see something and you look at it and you go, I want it. And so there are two things that you can want. Things that are lawful and things that are unlawful. Hugh Latimer, preaching before King Edward VI, said in his sermon... Take heed and beware of covetousness. 
take heed and beware of covetousness. Take heed and beware of covetousness, he said to the king. What if I should say nothing else these three or four hours? It was his way of saying, my sermon today is take heed and beware of covetousness. And I think that what I'm going to do is just repeat it for, oh, maybe a half an hour. And let it sink into your soul. Until you become bathed, inundated by it. Until the words themselves begin to penetrate and convict. John Stott said covetousness is a self-destructive passion. A craving which is never satisfied. Even when what has been craved is now possessed. And this is one of the ways that you know it's covetousness. One of the ways you know it's covetousness is you go, I want it. And then you get it. And then you say, I want more. It's how I felt about Almond Joy bars on on Halloween. (laughs) I saw the piles of candy that came into the church. And I saw the sweet chocolate with the refreshing coconut. And that almond tucked in. And I just had to have a little bit more. And once I ate it, it wasn't enough. Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, said, All the danger is when the world gets into your heart. He said, The water is useful for the sailing of the ship. All the danger is when the water gets into the ship. So the fear is when the world gets into the heart. Thou shalt not covet. He uses the illustration. Is there wrong with an ocean? Of course there's nothing wrong with an ocean. Is there something wrong with a ship? Of course there's nothing wrong with a ship. But what happens when the ocean tries to get into the ship? Then the ship That you know the answer. And that's exactly what happens. When covetousness gets into the heart. It it begins to weigh you down. You begin to feel the pressure. And the surrounding waves come crashing in. And so he writes about how the law reveals the occasion of sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, that's the adversative. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. That word that you see in verse 8, evil desire, is the exact same word that's translated from verse 7, covetousness. Here it's translated evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So when Paul writes, but sin, not the law, but sin stirred the evil desires. It wasn't the law stirring the evil desires. It was the sin. For apart from the law, sin was dead or hidden away. And so again, evil desire is translated covetousness in verse 7. Now, Paul doesn't want the reader to think that the law brought sin or created sin. Just like the Bible doesn't want you to believe that God brought sin. God isn't the author of sin. He isn't the originator of sin. 
God isn't the source of sin or the originator of sin. The function of the law was in part to bring to the conscience a sense of sin. And so in this sense, the law's primary office is towards the sinner. Now, someone might argue, well, the primary office of the law is to reveal God's holy character. And it is true that the law reveals God's holy character. Someone might argue, well, the function of the law is to pronounce right from wrong. And it is true that Part of the function of the law is to pronounce right from wrong. Yet Paul points out that the law serves the sinner by increasing his or her awareness of sin. I've used the illustration before in the past where this mom grabs her, her, her daughter because the daughter had grabbed her little brother by the hair and just started dragging him around the house by the hair and then kicked him in the shin. And she said, what possessed you to do that? How in the world did the devil give you the idea to pull your brother's hair and kick him in the shin? And the little girl looked at her mother and said, I think it was the devil that gave me the idea to pull his hair. But kicking him in the shin, that was my idea. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to locate exactly where the source is coming from. But Paul is pointing out that when the law reveals the difference between right and wrong, the sense or the conscience becomes profoundly aware. And look, the law reveals the power of sin in verse 9. Paul writes, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What is Paul suggesting? There was a time in Paul's life either when he was very young or whether he was very immature or very ignorant of his fallen nature and his sinful nature, then all of a sudden the commandment came. In this particular instance, it seems the commandment of covetousness, of desire, it came, the instruction of the law, and then all of a sudden there was this crashing conviction where Paul realized that to desire something that didn't belong to him, that he could have all of the external trappings of an outward behavior that matches the both the intent and the content of the law, but that there was something inside of him that was broken. Something inside of him that wanted something that didn't belong to him. Paul was blissfully ignorant of the cesspool that we call our hearts. He tried to keep the law and he did a great job of doing it, but then one day he failed. One day an instruction came that he wasn't able to to handle. Paul died to the thought that he had any inherent goodness. He died to the fantasy of being righteous by keeping the law. He understood something, that something was horribly and terribly wrong. And that no matter how religious he was, that all of his religiosity couldn't make up for the brokenness that was inside of his heart. 
The illustration that I use is often, imagine you get pulled over by the police for, for running through a stop sign, and you look at the officer and you go, all my life I've stopped at every stop sign. This is the only one I've ever ran through. Do you think the police officer will go, oh, well, since you've stopped one million times before, well, I guess I'm just going to let you have a warning. Or is the police officer going to write you up for failing to yield or for passing through the stop sign? Does all of the times that you stopped at the stop sign make up for the one time that you ran the stop sign? And all the times you told the truth and all the times you didn't steal and all the times you didn't covet and all of the times you were faithful to your husband or wife and all of the days and all of the weeks and all of the months that you did everything exactly right. Did it make up for the one time you did exactly wrong? And that's what Paul is pointing out. The law has the power to reveal the sin. But it didn't have the power to remove the sin. Some scholars say that when Paul understood the true meaning of the law, he realized something profound. And that was that he was a sinner. And that he was worthy of death. Roy Lauren gives this helpful insight. He writes, quote, There was a time in Paul's life when the full force of the commandment became apparent to Paul. In that moment, it was revealed to him that the power of evil which was inherent in him. And while this law had legal power to convict of sin, it had no life power to deliver from sin. And in that state of despair, Paul found himself as a man already dead. He was doomed by the law's verdict, totally bereft of power to help himself, and certainly without peace of heart or mind, unquote. Here's the point that Roy Lauren is making. All of a sudden you realize there's something wrong. There's something terribly wrong. What will make this wrongness go away? How can I get rid of this guilt? How can I shed myself of my responsibility? You can't. Remember what we said at the beginning of the sermon? Who is responsible for your sin? I am. You are. So the law reveals the effect of sin. Look at verse 10. And the commandment. Which was to bring life. I found to bring death. Here's what Paul is saying. And the commandment. What commandment? All of the commandments. But in particular I think he's talking about the one that he struggled with the most. And the commandment which which was supposed to bring life. In what way? Desire only that which is Appropriate. Don't long for something that doesn't belong to you. Don't long for something that you don't need. The commandment was supposed to bring life. In Paul's experience, it brought death. Why? Because he broke the commandment. And the effect was, at first, guilt. 
And then the knowledge of sin. And then the effect of sin is death. Paul knows that the effect of law doesn't bring death. Death existed apart from the law. Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God's command and their children and their children's children, there was no Mosaic law. But guess what? The children, prior to the giving of the law, their life came to an abrupt end. Death was in the world before the law was given, yet death came when at least one command of God was broken. So what did the law do? I'm going to suggest to you in verse 10, the point that Paul is making is it made legal. The consequence. It made legal the consequence. There was a time in Colorado when it was illegal to smoke marijuana, except for medicinal purposes. And then we incorporated in our constitution the Coloradan God given right to smoke marijuana. The law was done away with. As a matter of fact, exactly the opposite happened. Inculcated, encapsulated in our very constitution is the right for people to smoke marijuana. And now, it's legal. But do you suppose that there's two kinds of law? The law of God and the law of man And we can make legal something that is immoral. What Paul is saying is the commandment makes legal the consequence. The law, remember, removes our ignorance of sin in verse 7. The law, remember, resurrects the sinful desire in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. The law requires the death penalty in verse 10. And so now the law reveals the deception of sin in verse 11. Look what it says. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Think about what Paul is saying. Sin used the law as the very expression, as the very occasion to reveal something not only about itself, but about himself. Sin is sinister. Sin is deceitful. Sin causes us to think wrongly about God. And to think wrongly about the law. Sin causes us to make God's holiness less holy. Not unholy. Sin will go, well, I know that God is holy, but just how holy is he exactly? Sin will make God's righteous standard a little lower. Sin will, will, will deceive ourselves into thinking for some that sin isn't even real or that it's less real or that it's less harmful. We assume that we can sin without consequence. We know that sin is pleasurable. We know it's enjoyable. We know it's delightful. We kid ourselves into thinking that pleasure and enjoyment will provide satisfaction and delight. And so Augustine wrote, I have met with many that would deceive. Who would be deceived? No one. It was Augustine's way of saying, you know, I've met a lot of people who are willing to lie to me. 
But I never met a single person who wanted to be lied to. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting that often we can tell the difference between right and wrong and good and evil and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate is when somebody does it to you. If someone just stopped you and pointed a gun at your head and said, give me your purse or give me your wallet, at that point do you realize, hey, I think something terribly wrong is happening here. You get it. You understand it. You understand when it's happening to you. Paul admits being deceived by sin has fatal consequences. What does Paul mean? It killed me. By the way, is Paul still alive when he's writing this? Yes. So when he says, it killed me. Could it mean physically killed? No, he wouldn't be able to finish the sentence and we wouldn't have the book of Romans. Or at least we wouldn't have verse 12. He must mean something else. He must be talking about a spiritual death. The kind of death that kills friendship and fellowship with God. The kind of death that makes relationship with God impossible. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 28, the writer of Hebrews, who may be Paul, writes, He that despises Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. If you break Moses' law and you can get two or three people to testify to that extent, then you could be put to death. And so, the law reveals the sinfulness of sin. Look at verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So how does the law reveal the sinfulness of sin? In part, by reflecting the character of God. Therefore, the law is holy. In what sense? Set apart. In what sense? It's not sinful, it's holy. The law demands equity. The law demands justice. The law is beneficial. It's described as good. And those of you who understand know that law protects our lives. It protects our property. It protects our families. Law, rightfully enacted and rightly legislated and rightly embraced, doesn't bring restriction. It brings appropriate. Appropriate freedom. The high and holy standard of behavior, John Phillips wrote, demanded by the law leaves the sinner exposed, lost, defenseless. The law cannot save. That's the prerogative of grace. And so again, we're once again reminded, the law cannot save Only grace can save. It's God's unmerited favor. It's in spite of breaking the law. And so again, in verse 13, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. That's the law. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Paul admits the law is holy. The law is just. The law is good. Did the law kill Paul? No. Sin did. Sin did. 
Unlike the Eric Clapton song, I shot the law and the law won. Or I fought the law. It's not shot the law. I fought the law. And you can fight the law. But the law will win. Because the law exposes and reveals sin. In all of its ugly horror. There are some 15 Hebrew words in the Old Testament for sin. Covering covering the entire spectrum. From wrong thinking. And wrong speaking. And wrong behavior. In the New Testament as well. Pride. Self-will. Teaching false doctrine. Denying Christ. Polluting the house of God. Being stiff-necked. Blasphemy. Boasting. Lacking mercy. Disobeying your mom and your dad. Living in the flesh. That is apart from God and apart from Christ. Paul writes, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells in verse 17. Paul has already described sin like a tyrannical monster in chapter 6, verse 17. You were the servants of sin. The book of Genesis describes sin like a lurking monster. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, when when the Lord was speaking to Cain, he said, sin lieth at the door and its desire is for you. He warned him that like a monster, it's looking for just the opportunity to take advantage of you. Spurgeon, in the way that only Spurgeon could speak, said, the heart is like a dark cellar full of lizards and cockroaches and beetles and all kinds of reptiles and insects which in the dark we see not but the law takes down the shutters and lets in the light and we see its evil and that's exactly right the law Opens the door, it lifts the blinds, it lets in the light, and you see the circumstance of your very real condition. Medicine's supposed to cause wellness, not sickness. The doctor's job is to use his or her great skills to expose the injury and to expose the illness so that it might be treated. And God uses the law to reveal the sinfulness of sin. And then he uses the law to awaken and energize and inflame the sinfulness of the flesh. Our dormant desires then become burning passions. So how are we supposed to think about all of this? In verse 10, Paul found the law to bring death. Now he writes, but sin was producing death in me. So the solution I'm going to suggest to you is the law by itself doesn't improve the old nature. And it doesn't cause us to sin, but rather it reveals sin. Let me give you an illustration. Can a thermometer... Make you hot or cold. A thermometer just simply reveals the presence of the heat and the cold. The law is like that. It's a thermometer. It's not a thermostat. Do you know what a thermostat is? The thing that you 
crank up the heat or you lower the heat, the law can't make the heat go up or the heat go down. Sin uses the law to cause any hope of improvement to die. And so then Paul sees the exceeding sinfulness of sin and Paul the Pharisee, Paul the law keeper, Paul the person who grew up in a religious tradition where you do all of the religious things and you do them religiously right. He said, no matter how good of a Jew I am, no matter how good of a Pharisee I am, no matter how I seek to keep the law, the law continues to remind me that I'm a lawbreaker. And so Paul will make his case for grace. Paul's point, the law has served its good and holy purpose. The purpose was to prove spiritual deadness on the part of the sinner. To prove the need for assistance and to have salvation. Samuel Bolton wrote, when you see that men have been wounded by the law, then it is time to pour in the gospel oil. It is the sharp needle of the law that makes way for the scarlet thread of the gospel. And he sees the law like a needle and the gospel like the thread to bind up your wound. Paul lived in the jurisdiction of Moses and the jurisdiction of Rome. What will awaken our sense of sin? What will awaken our conscience? According to the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit. To the believer, the Holy Spirit is a comforter. But to the unbeliever and the make-believer, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin. Jesus said, when he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, he will reprove, that is, convince the world of sin. In John chapter 16, verse 18, so the Holy Spirit shows up and says, you have a problem. There's something wrong. You have a problem. And Jesus is the solution. Samuel Bolton again writes, The law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire about our duty. Now that we've been justified. For the unbeliever, the law sends him to Jesus. And then for the believer, Jesus sends the believer back to say, do you want to know what's good? Do you want to know what's holy? Do you want to know what's true? D.L. Moody got it right when he said, the law tells me how crooked I am. And then grace comes along and straightens me out. But remember, it's grace that's straightening you out. It's grace that's giving you the ability to think right. It's grace that's giving you the ability to feel right and to speak right and to say what's right. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall be no flesh be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul will beg the question. If we're dead to our sin, nature... And to law's demands. Then why do we have such a hard time obeying God? Oh, except for you. The one person who has no problem in that area. 
Well, if that's you, then you can skip the next study. Because in the next study in Romans, Paul is going to help us answer the question of how to deal with our ongoing struggle with sin. Paul will help us understand that we can't quench our appetite for sin on our own. And he's going to help us understand that we don't always do what we want in relationship to our behavior. And he's going to help us come to grips with the fact that we can't, we can't, we can't ignore our sin nature because it is there actively promoting disobedience in our lives. Paul will expose the civil war that's raging inside of us. Will our imperfections ever become perfections? No. Will our failures ever become successes? No. Do we have to hide our struggle and our imperfection from God? That's the right answer. Because he knows the truth about your imperfections and your struggles. And he's willing to give you the one thing that will help you the most. Grace. The law required what it couldn't give. And grace will give exactly what it requires. Oh, I guess I better stop. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for... Paul's examination of this difficult issue. Lord, we discover something that in Paul's struggles, it reflects our own. And for Paul's solutions, it reflects our own. The law can't give us what we need except to point us to Jesus and point us to grace and point us to a solution Lord, we know that the law can't make us better. And for some of us, it makes us downright worse. And yet, Lord, we pray that in the revelation of what's right and wrong and what's good and evil, we would still long for what's right. And we would still long for what's good. That Jesus in us wants to display goodness and grace and mercy. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that person who knows that he or she has broken the law and that the law can't make them holy and that the law can't save them. That for salvation, it's going to require a Savior. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that they would do the most simple and basic thing to confess their sin, to confess their need for forgiveness. And to desire that Jesus would in fact forgive their sin and become their savior. And that he would redeem them and reconcile them and purify them and then change them from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.